Uh, every grade from second grade all the way through high school, I, I went to summer camp for at least one week each summer. Anybody else kind of fall in that category? They went to summer camp as kids. Okay, it's like we're, we're dying off. We are a dying breed of kids. Uh, I, I went to a camp that I would highly recommend, actually, if you have young ones to send them to it. In fact, I, I'll say this. There would be no greater investment that I really believe this that you could make in, in your child's life than sending them to a week of summer camp, particularly at the place that I went to every single summer. Uh, it's a place you've probably heard of before called Spring Hill. Uh, and about half of those summers at Spring Hill, I participated in something called BMX camp. Um, I just loved riding around on these little bikes and launching off jumps, and I seemed to have an indestructible body at that point in my life, and I could fall really hard, and things wouldn't break, and like, I didn't mind getting hurt. Like, it, it was the best. And the thing that I looked most forward to within BMX camp was this activity called the lake jump. And you only got to do it for one afternoon of one day the entire week at camp, but basically what it is, and, and by the way, they would never let this fly uh, in present day because too many kids would get hurt. Uh, but what it was, it was this like 50-yard run-up, like this, this ramp down a hillside, and they just kind of laid like, you know, plywood basically down. You go like 50 yards down, super, super fast, and at the end of it, it'd run into a body of water, uh, but there was a six-foot vert ramp at the bottom of that that you would just launch off of, and then in the air, as a 12-year-old, you'd have, the self, have to have the self-awareness to kind of throw the bike to the side in the air, and then you land safely in the water. And it was a blast. It was so much fun. In fact, right now, if you're like, oh, I have one of those at my house, I'd be like, let's go do it. Like, I'm in. Like, I, I couldn't tell you how interested I would be in that. And I look forward to that every single summer that I went to BMX camp. But uh, there was something that happened every single summer that I, I went to that camp, and they had the lake jump. Uh, there would always be at least one kid every week that, that about halfway down the ramp would decide, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and and they would diverge to the left or to the right, or they just kind of fall off, or they try to put their feet down, and they would get seriously hurt, like broken legs, broken collarbones, smash their faces off, and you'd just be like, oh, you know that collective groan among boys? Oh, like you just like, dude, it would have been so much better for you if you would have just launched off that jump, but they couldn't stop because two things were going on with these bikes. One, they didn't have brakes, because they knew the kids wouldn't carry enough speed to make it off the end of the jump, so we're like, we're just gonna take that whole thing out of there. And two, the pedals were welded into place because if you had the pedal down as you go off the top of a vert ramp, for any of you that messed around on bikes and stuff and jumps, it'll clip the top of it and like be a disaster. So once you went over the edge of this ramp, you were in. There was like no turning back, but yet there would be a kid every single time, every single time that would diverge to the left, run into a tree, run into bushes, just bail it down the ramp. And again, you'd be like, oh my goodness. Again, that would have been so much better for you if you just went off the jump. Another thing that I remembered is, as I was thinking about this and processing this, this story, there would always be a couple kids every single week. And, and Spring Hill is such an encouraging environment. One of the things that they actually practice and, and, and lift up is that you always lift up that kid that might not be the most popular kid back at home. And so it's just a positive and encouraging atmosphere to be in. And so there'd be kids that you could tell, I mean, they were sweating buckets. They did not want to go down and hit the lake jump. But everybody would be chanting their name like, Cody. Cody, Cody, you know, it's getting louder and louder. And, you know, people are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And they'd start going, and then they'd put their foot down. And they're like, okay. And they'd get ready again, and then at the last minute again, they, they'd put their foot down. And eventually, every single week, like clockwork, I, I used to be an instructor for this too, you, you would see a kid that would finally put that foot down, and then he'd take the other foot off, and they'd walk back down the stairs. And they just kind of hang their head in shame because they were so embarrassed that, you know, they kind of let themselves down, and they didn't have the guts to go down you know, the lake jump. And I remember even as a kid, I always felt bad for those kids. Not only one, because it was just an embarrassing, humiliating thing to kind of have to trot back down those stairs. But two, I was just like, man, if you would just try this, 
If you just did it once, you would never regret it. In fact, you'd want to go a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth time. I mean, oh my goodness, I just want this for you so badly. And as I thought about that, and as I've thought about, you know, preparing this series and writing these messages, I thought, man, what a picture-perfect illustration of what so many of our faith journeys look like. What, what, what a perfect image of what so many of our journeys walking with Jesus look like. We'll, we'll touch more on that in just a second here. Uh, as you've already figured out, we're starting this brand new series today, a five-part series called Radical. And man, I, I can't tell you how excited I am for this series and how much I've been looking forward to this and how much fun we've had planning this. Uh, and the inspiration really for this entire series lies in the fact that if you were to pick up any historical uh, document, any historical documentation that documented the rise of the early Christian church, whether it be the Bible and the book of Acts or, or any secular piece of literature for that matter either, and you were to read about these early Christians, or read about these early first century Christians and the rise of the early Christian church, and I want us to do our best that during this series, when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. In fact, our English word for church does a miserable job at capturing what Jesus originally intended. In fact, the original word is this Greek word called ekklesia. And ekklesia is, means community or congregation or assembly. It refers to a group of people, a community of people. And if you were to read about, again, the early Christian church, these early group of people, it sure sounds a whole lot different that what we are experiencing today in 21st century America, in fact, when you study and, and you read about the early Christian church, and I would challenge you to, to do this, it sounds like it's honestly something completely different. You wonder if we're even talking about the same thing when we compare it with what we are experiencing today. Uh, I want to give you just one example of this. We find this in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is a book that we find immediately after the gospel books in the New Testament. So the Bible's kind of divided up into two sections. You have the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And in that New Testament, uh, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four books document Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. And then immediately after that, there's this book called Acts, which again talks about this early Christian church after Jesus has gone and left earth. Now, this is one of the examples that we find there. It says that all the believers and all the Christians, the early church, met together in one place. And we're like, okay, that, that kind of sounds like us. In fact, we're kind of doing that today, but that's about where it ends. It says, and they shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. You guys, this means exactly what it seems like it means. People literally shared everything that they had. Nothing was off limits. There was no, okay, yeah, you can borrow like the family minivan with 180,000 miles on it that the kids have pretty much pulverized already. I mean, yeah, that's up for grabs, but obviously I'm not gonna let you borrow the brand new F-150. I mean, that's nice. I don't even like my own kids riding in that thing. I mean, that type of thinking did not exist. There were no off-limit items. You want to borrow my laptop? Have at it. You want to borrow some of my clothes, even though I know I might not see them ever again? Go for it. You're going away for the weekend. You want to go camping, and I got a camper? Take it. You're going on vacation for a week, and you're going to be on a body of water, and you don't have a boat? Shoot, you can take my boat for the week. Hey, you need to borrow a vehicle because yours broke down? Take my car. Even though I know that that's going to inconvenience me, and it's going to force me and my wife to kind of coordinate our schedules, I'm okay with that. You can basically treat anything that is mine like it is yours. If someone needed something, you gave it to them. And you didn't just give the people the junk that you already had boxed up and were about to drop off at Goodwill anyway. People gave their best stuff. People gave away the things that they actually still cared about, the things that they were still using. For years, I served in a ministry 
uh, down in Detroit called 323, which just aimed to reach, um, you know, these young kids that were living in this Highland Park area, really impoverished, rough area. And uh, not, it didn't take too long after being there for, for me to figure out that there would be certain kids that would show up week after week after week that were wearing the same outfit every single Tuesday. Every single Tuesday I'd go down there and there'd be kids that wear the same clothes every single week. And, and I started to feel a little bit conflicted and even convicted about that because I'd walk into my closet and be like, there are clothes in here that are almost brand new that I have not put on my back, that I have not put on my legs in literally over a year. They're like collecting dust. And so every Tuesday before I go down to 323, I'd, I'd grab a couple clothes, you know, a, a sweatshirt. I'd grab a couple t-shirts, maybe a pair of shorts, and I'd take them down there and I'd give them to, the, to, to a couple of the kids that I thought would appreciate the gesture. And they did. They were like thrilled. It became this thing on Tuesdays, like, what's Shay going to bring this week? And I'd give it to them and, you know, they'd be super exciting. And then it was super like gratifying for me because the very next week you'd see them wearing that sweatshirt or wearing that t-shirt or wearing those shorts. I'm like, that's awesome. This stuff is actually getting some use now. But I'll never forget this. Joe, who is the director down there and, and runs this ministry, in fact, he'll actually be leading our music here in a couple of weeks. Um, he looked at me one day and he said, hey, Shay, I noticed that you've been like bringing clothes for the kids. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, is that okay? Should I have like asked for permission to do that? And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. He goes, are these clothes that you still wear? And I was like, no, that's a great thing, actually. They just got to sit in my closet. Like I've convinced myself that I wear them, but honestly, I, I don't really wear them anymore. And he's like, that's awesome. And then he said something to me that had it been like 10 years earlier in my life, I, I would have got super defensive about, but I totally understood his heart behind it. And, and he was just trying to help me grow. And he, he wants to see me become more like Jesus. He said to me, that's great, but what would it look like if you started giving those kids clothes that you actually still liked? Like clothes that you actually still wore. I thought, man, what would change in my heart? If, if my first reaction, one of those kids came up to me and said, hey, Shay, I really like your shoes. Actually, they wouldn't say that because these are white people's shoes and they didn't care about these shoes. But they're like, hey, Shay, I really like, I really like that, that sweatshirt that you're wearing. I really like that, that shirt. And, and my first reaction wasn't to say, like, thanks, that's awesome. My first reaction was literally to take it off my back as, as soon as I could and, and just hand it to them. What would change in my life? What would have changed in those kids' lives? Another, again, he says, go back, go back, go back. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They would sell their items, they would sell their stuff, they would sell their possessions that they still used, that they still cherished, that they actually still cared about, that they still considered valuable to help other people in need. You know, th this situation plays out in our own lives. Let's say you've started to kind of get to know somebody here that, that shows up to Grumlaw and, you know, they're no longer just kind of acquaintances. You see them every week. Maybe you serve alongside of them. Maybe they're in, you're in a connect group with them. You've actually started to get to know this person and, and you ask them that somewhat trivial question of, hey, how are you doing? And you just expect back, you know, the simple, I'm good. But they're actually honest with you and answer your question. And they say something like, well, actually things aren't very good right now. Um, my husband lost his job or my wife, she lost her job. And financially speaking, things right now are, are really, really tight for us. Things are really, really difficult for us. What do we do in that situation? And I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I mean, I, I do this myself as well. Typically in that situation, we look at them, we go, oh, that's really hard. I'm so sorry to hear that. And, th and then we might take it a step farther and put our hand on their shoulder and say, oh, if, if I hear of anything, I'll be sure to let you know. If I hear of any other jobs, best case scenario, best case scenario, we look at them and we say, hey, I'll be praying for that. And they, and they reply with a smile. I'm not saying that that is wrong, 
But that is such a far cry from what we see this early church doing. I'm sure that they prayed about it, but that was not their first reaction. Their first reaction was to start unloading some of their stuff that they still considered valuable and then take that money and give it to those people so that their needs are actually being met and they're not just faced with just this trivial Christian talk of, I'll pray for you. They tried to meet the needs of those people. And you guys, this is just one example. You read the book of Acts and you compare it with, with, with what we refer to today as church and I'm telling you, it's unrecognizable. There are more differences than similarities. It's as if they are talking about something completely different. It is a completely different movement. And friends, church, this has been and I'm not just saying this, this has been the most difficult series that I have ever prepared for. Because it's so convicting and it's forcing me to kind of rethink everything that we're doing around here. It's made me feel like I've failed myself in so many ways. It's made me feel like I've failed a lot of you in a lot of ways. But the good news is, is that we kind of have a choice from this point moving forward. We can continue with business as usual and the Christian life defined by the culture around us or... Or we can take an honest look at Jesus and dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed and obeyed him. And this is what we have to decide. This is our radical decision. And what you're going to see over the next five weeks is that there's probably more at stake than you realize. And no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, whether this is your first time you know, stepping through our doors and you're like, holy smokes, what did I sign up for today? (laughs) Or you've been coming to church your entire life. It has profound implications for you. But at the end of this, I'm telling you, it's worth exploring. And there's definitely a cost and there will definitely be some hard questions to ask yourself along the way, but I'm telling you, it is worth it. It's worth it. Let me pray for us before we continue. Father, I just say thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a God that has preserved um, these things for us. Um, that Jesus, when you were here on earth, you, uh, you weren't content to just let, let, allow people to just go through the motions, but you really challenged us where we were at in, in just such a loving way. And, and we thank you for that, that those challenges and, and that type of thinking still lives on today. And I ask that everybody would just be willing to hear whatever it is that you might want to say to them today. You're an incredible, incredible father. And it's in your name I pray, amen. Um, when I think of what we're doing here at, at, at Grumlaw week to week, uh, and I'm not ashamed or embarrassed of this. In fact, I would advocate that every church sh- should live this way. We will basically do anything short of sinning to get people to walk through our doors and make sure that you feel comfortable when you walk here. I mean, think about it. We send out postcards to people that just moved to the area. We do Facebook and Instagram advertising. Uh, we, we, we put up billboards. Uh, we go to all these festivals and community events and just hand out free stuff all in an effort to maybe have a conversation with just a couple of people and maybe they'll show up here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we play catchy music for you as you walk in. If it's your first time here, we, we try to get you to take a drink out of a fr- fridge, and it's, it's not a weird, like, drink. It's, like, actually pretty good beverages. It's the kind of stuff that when you walk into a gas station, you think, who buys this stuff? It's so expensive. We're buying that stuff for you. We, we, we make sure that, that, that it's not too hot in here. We make sure that it's not too cold in here. Uh, we put up these big blow-ups back in the kids' spaces. I mean, you hear them thumping through the walls. They're having, like, the time of their lives back there. And, again, I don't think that any of that stuff is wrong, and, in fact, we will continue to do those things. And here's what we also know. It works. 
A lot of you, and I don't say this to be arrogant, but a lot of you are sitting here today for some of those reasons that I just listed. And it might not be the thing that kept you coming back week after week, but at least it was the thing that got you to walk through our doors initially. It's a lot of those things, the reasons why, even though you visited a ton of other churches in the area, and again, I, I don't say this to be arrogant at all, but you went to a bunch of other churches, and after one week being here, you're like, okay, this is the place. This is the place that I'm going to make a part of my weekly rhythm. But I tell you all that to say that Jesus, when he started this movement thousands of years ago, he did none of that. Not one thing. Not, not any of that stuff that I just mentioned was Jesus up to. In fact, he started this movement thousands of years ago that still lives on today, which is crazy. It has withstood the test of time like nothing else in the history of our world. Right now, currently in our world, 2.2 billion people would claim that they are Jesus followers, that they are Christians. And he didn't do it because the music was really good. And he didn't get people to show up because we had sweet inflatables for your kids. No, in fact, Jesus built this movement on the backs of statements like this. I tell you the truth, this is Jesus talking. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, now the Son of Man was, was a term that he used for himself to talk about himself in the third person. So unless you eat the flesh of Jesus and you drink Jesus' blood, you can't have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise that person at the last day. It's like, oh, okay, that sounds normal. <laughs> Can you imagine Jesus' disciples as they're sitting here listening to this stuff? You know, the, 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 these were normal guys, tax collectors and fishermen, and they're sitting there and they're going, oh my gosh, Peter, he's doing it again. He's, he's doing the vampire speech again. This is so freaking weird. Jesus, if you keep this up, nobody else is going to jump on board with this stuff. It's gonna be the 13 of us forever. You, you gotta cut it out with the flesh and the blood talk. On another occasion, this guy comes running up to Jesus and he's super excited about following Jesus. And, and he's, he's rich and he's young and apparently he's pretty good looking and he had a lot of influence and he's like, he's on board. He's, he's ready to do this Jesus thing. And the disciples, again, had to be thinking, this is awesome. We're gonna get another recruit. We're gonna get another one of our followers. So he comes running up to Jesus like, hey, I'm in. I, I wanna be one of your followers. And Jesus is like, that's awesome. Do you follow my commands? And he's like, heck yeah. I mean, I don't lie, I don't steal. I honor my parents. I'm a good person and I, I don't curse. Like, I'm just a, I'm a good person. I've, I've held all these commands since I was a little boy. And he's like, awesome but you have a lot of money, right? He's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty wealthy. And he goes, okay, so, so one more thing I want you to do. Go and sell all your possessions, all of them, and give the money to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Then come, as if that's just a really casual thing to do, to just go unload your stuff. And it says that the guy walked away with his head down. And again, the disciples would have had to have been sitting there going, Jesus, you're blowing it. He was in. He was totally on board for this. Why do you continue to make this so difficult? And if you read this stuff for yourself, and I would challenge you to do so, don't take my word for it. It's almost like Jesus is trying to talk people out of it. It's like he's using this hyper-spiritual, like, reverse psychology. Kat uh, is one of, these, uh, one of the girls that live with my, uh, my wife and I. Uh, she actually runs our middle school program. She's up here sometimes ripping the keys. And uh, she's been interviewing for a lot of different positions lately. And one of the positions that she's been applying for, uh, because this is what my background is in, is uh, medical sales. And I, I thought, yeah, you know, Kat, you would kill it in this role. Like, I think you should apply for this stuff. And she came back from one of those interviews. And uh, I asked her, I was like, how did it go? And she's like, I think it went pretty well. She's like, but it was a little weird. And I said, why do you say that? She's like, it was like he was trying to talk me out of it. 
He told me all these horror stories of just how you work really, really hard and you don't make that much money initially and, and doctors can kind of be jerks to you some days just depending on what their day, kind of day that they're having and that you have to kind of love rejection and you're running around like a chicken with your head chopped off. I mean, just ready to look at your pager at the drop of a hat. He's, it didn't sound all that great. She's like, is all that stuff true? I'm like, yeah, for sure. I experienced all that when I was in medical sales and she's kind of sitting there thinking it over. I'm, so I asked her, I was like, well, do you think this is still something you want to proceed with? thinking that maybe she had talked herself out of it by that point. And she's like, yeah, I, I think I want to do this. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, th maybe that's what Jesus was up to. In fact, that's kind of what I thought he was doing until I really studied these verses for myself. And I got to be honest, when I started reading things like this, I kind of felt duped. I kind of felt like, okay, Jesus is not who he was portrayed to be when I was in Sunday school. Dare I say, Jesus kind of sounds like a jerk. On another occasion, uh, it says, as they were walking along, they being, again, Jesus and his 12 disciples, his 12 best friends, these guys that he spent, like, every waking moment with. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever I go. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, right? But Jesus replies to him, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. What? What does that have to do with anything? But the son of man, Jesus, has no place to even lay his head. And apparently Jesus knew this guy better than he knew himself. And he knew that this guy, like all of us, kind of liked earthly things and liked earthly comforts. Most notably, like this guy apparently liked to, to go home at the end of the night and have a nice, comfortable place to sleep. And Jesus is telling him, hey, if you decide to be my follower, if you decide to be part of my crew, you're going to have to sacrifice some of that. Are you ready for that? And we're not really told how the guy responds. Uh, he said to another person, this time he's doing a little recruiting, come follow me. He's like, come on, let's do this. And the man agreed, he's in. But he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Now that is a very reasonable request, right? He needs to go home, bury his dad, you know, make the funeral arrangements, and then he's in. So you would surely think in this moment that Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Go attend to that stuff and then come on back to me. I got another recruit, right? No, not so much. Listen to what Jesus says. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Wow. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. I mean, this is almost worse than like the vampire talk, right? I mean, it's so insensitive. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. I mean, that is so simple. I mean, he's gonna go along with this one, right? I mean, just go home, like 15-minute ordeal, go home, say goodbye to my family, and then I'm in, I'm, I'm gonna follow you. But you're probably catching the trend here. Jesus says, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, he looks at him, he says, don't bother, don't waste your time, we're okay without you. And that's strange because again, it almost seems like Jesus is trying to talk people out of it. Even those people that seem pretty enthused to follow him. And I don't know about you, but, but this is certainly true for me. When I read passages of scripture like this, uh, the thing that goes through my mind, and I bet it goes through some of your minds too, you just might be afraid to actually say it out loud because you might think you get a lightning bolt down from heaven, but I, I wonder, what was Jesus' problem? I mean, seriously, what was his deal? Why did he seem so bent on talking people out of this stuff? Why, why did he seem just like he was doing everything he could to keep people from following him? 
When my wife and I began to feel this, this nudge and this prompting, I guess is what I would call it, to, to start this church, um, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I didn't want to do it. Life was pretty comfortable, and I, I knew eventually that, that I wanted to get into ministry, but I certainly didn't want to start a church. In fact, I mean, thank goodness for my wife, and I've shared a little bit about this before. I wanted to just move to another country, sell everything, move to another country, and become a missionary, because in my mind, that sounded a lot easier. I know that that sounds ridiculous, but I still to this day actually think it's a lot easier. You go to a third world country, go on a mission trip, and tell people about Jesus. It's kind of crazy the response you get. Convincing Americans who have a lot that they need Jesus is a little bit different of a ball game. And so that's what I wanted to do. I was like, honey, we're moving to Guatemala. In fact, Lance and Lauren were there at the time. I was like, we're in. We're doing this thing. And she's like, well, slow down there, trick daddy. We, we might do that, but we might, but we got to pray about this stuff here first. And so, you know, we prayed about it. And, and eventually it got to this point where I was like, okay, if we don't do this, I'm just being disobedient to God. He has made it so clear that we're supposed to do this. And, and for me, and I'm not saying this is the case for you, but for me, that is the scariest thing ever, that I would not do something that I know clearly that my heavenly father wants me to do. And so I said, okay, we're, we're gonna move forward with this. We're, we're gonna start this church. And so kind of the first thing that I did was I just started picking up the phone and calling other people who had planted churches, other pastors, and uh, just started having conversation, conversations with them of like, okay, what's the first step? What's the, what the kind of the first things that we need to start doing? And to a man, every single one of them tried to talk me out of it. They, they told me story after story after story of all the terrible things that will happen to you when you start a church. They're looking at me going, you know how much money it costs to start a church? Where are you gonna get that money from? It's hard to raise money to start a church. Shay, do you know the toll that that is gonna take on your marriage? That's gonna be hard. Shay, you have young kids. You, you know the strain that that's gonna put on the relationship with your kids? Do you know how difficult it is going to be to try to get other people to jump on this journey with you because you can't do it yourself? And they went through thing after thing after thing after thing after thing and told me all these terrible things that were gonna happen. And guess what? They all did. Every single one of those things that was predicted to me over those couple of weeks as I called person after person after person, every single one of those things has happened. But guess what? It's been worth it. It's been worth it. I would do it all in a heartbeat. I would do it all without thinking twice. It has been 100% worth it despite all of those negative circumstances that we've experienced. If the verses that I just showed you here over the last 10 minutes or so were, were all that you knew about Jesus, and I recognize that for some of you that might be the case, uh, it would stand to reason that Jesus is a pretty insensitive jerk, but I'm telling you, it's not the case. In all of those instances, Jesus isn't being unsympathetic. He understands the mourning of a loved one. In fact, the shortest verse in scripture is, is Jesus wept. And the reason that he wept, he was bawling his eyes out because he had just lost a dear friend. He, he knows how hard it can be to get rid of material possessions. He understands the love and the bond that we have for close friends and for family members. And he's certainly not suggesting that any of those things are wrong. No, what Jesus is driving home and making sure that we all understand, and if you read the Gospels, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm telling you, it's impossible to miss. And it's quite similar to what every single one of those pastors were trying to do with me before we started this church that following Jesus means abandoning yourself. That, that, that following Jesus means abandoning you. And, and Jesus is telling us, he's saying, count 
the cost, count the cost, because it means giving up your own way. It means leaving certainty for uncertainty. It means leaving safety for danger, self-preservation for self-denunciation. In a world that prizes promoting you, Jesus is telling you with, with quite strong symbolism to crucify your own way. Now, depending on where you're at on this whole faith journey, that might sound really, really exhilarating and exciting, but if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, I totally get this. That sounds terrible. In fact, it sounds terrifying, and a lot of people can, can read into these words that Jesus is saying here and, and think to themselves, okay, you just made the decision really easy for me. I'm not becoming a Christian. Because apparently becoming a Christian means I have to abandon all of my friends and family members, move to a remote tribe in the middle of Africa, and spend the rest of my life telling those people about Jesus. That's not the case. But what he is saying, what he is saying, is if he does ask us to make that type of move, we'll trust him enough to say yes rather than saying no. We will respond in obedience, we will give up our own way, and we'll trust God. And if this freaks you out, because again, you're new to this whole Christianity thing, don't lose sleep over this. And I say that because if you don't have a relationship with God or, or your relationship with God is really, really young, then chances are he's not going to ask you to take some drastic step. And even if he did, let's be honest, you're not going to do it anyway. It's one of the great things about being in a relationship with Jesus. He meets us right where we are at. And for the most part, and granted, there are the outlier like Damascus Road type examples, but predominantly he does not ask us to take steps that are so far beyond our spiritual maturity. I remember uh, when Lance, uh, who's on staff here now, uh, him and his wife, they, they decided that they were going to go and, and move to Guatemala and become full-time missionaries years and years ago. Uh, and they literally, they did that kind of stereotypical, like crazy, radical Jesus follower thing. They sold everything, they quit their jobs, and they packed up their kids, and they moved to another country to be missionaries there. I mean, it was pretty crazy. And I remember even at that time, and that was like five, six years ago, I remember at that time thinking, are you out of your mind? I mean, for me at that time, it sounded absolutely crazy. And I gotta be honest, take me back six years ago, and, and God asked me to do that, I'm saying No. I would have been blatantly disobedient. Now, fast forward to present day, and God tells me and my wife, he comes down, and he's like, hey, he starts nudging and prompting us to go move to another country. I'm in. I'm going to do it. As we grow in our relationship with God, he will absolutely push us to take a step that does stretch us, but not a step that is so far beyond our faith comprehension. And so today, maybe this is the first time that you've stepped foot in a church in 10 years. Maybe you haven't really been going to church at all and you decided for whatever reason to walk through our doors. Maybe your first, maybe your next radical step of obedience is just showing back up next week. Is making a commitment inside of yourself to say, you know what, I'm gonna keep coming here for the entire month of November and I'll just kind of see what happens. But for others of you, you've been coming to church your entire life. And if you were honest with yourself, your life doesn't look that all that different now than it did 10 years ago. And maybe your next radical step of obedience is that you sell your home, you downsize, and you take every nickel and you give it away to somebody in need. You give it away to a family need. You give it away to a charity, something like Kingdom Investment in Nepal, that organization that we partner with that, that fights against human and sex trafficking. This is what God does. He asks us to take steps that over time will absolutely stretch our faith. And before you know it, the idea of starting a church doesn't sound so crazy. 
Before you know it, God starts impressing upon you to adopt, even though you already have just a bunch of maniac kids at home, and you're like, we might do that. You're empty nesters, and, and you're at home, and you are so ready and excited for your kids to get the heck out of there, and it's time for you to start living out your glory days, and God starts pressing upon you to foster, and you're like, what? But over the span of a week, you're like, yeah, that seems like a real possibility. The idea of, of, of uprooting yourself and moving to a foreign country, it, it's not as terrifying. The idea of selling a bunch of your stuff and just giving the money away, it doesn't sound terrifying. It actually sounds exhilarating. But unfortunately, so many of us have grown up with a version of Christianity that revolves around you when the central message of Jesus is to abandon you. In our society, it's all about you. And sadly enough, in a lot of cases, the church has just become an extension of that. Are your needs being met? Do you like the music? Do you relate to the preacher? Is it warm enough? Is it cool enough? Is God, Jesus, the church, meeting your needs? And a lot of churches, in an effort to make sure that those needs are being met, and more importantly in their minds, to make sure that you keep coming back week after week after week, has slowly morphed into this version of Christianity that looks so far from the radical behavior that we see in the early church. And maybe you're okay with that. But I'm not. Not here. If you've been showing up here for, for any length of time, you, you've heard me say this before. God's for you. He, he's more for you than, than you could possibly imagine. He has your best interest in mind, more than you have your best interest in mind. And it would be so easy to misinterpret what, what I'm saying, what Jesus said here is, okay, you, you should just do what Jesus wants you to do, what God wants you to do, because it's the right thing to do. And I'm telling you, it's so much better than that. In the midst of all this, we can miss something that, that is so, so important. Again, in that story of that rich young ruler, he comes up and he's so enthused to begin following Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, you keep a lot of my commands, but, and again, he says, I want you to go and I want you to sell all your possessions. And I want you to give the money to the poor. And, and we, we just breeze past these words and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, then come. Follow me. Jesus was not trying to strip this guy of everything that brought him earthly pleasure, but instead he was offering him the satisfaction of eternal rewards, of eternal treasure. Jesus is telling him, okay, hey, this is not only going to be better for the needy, for the poor people that are going to benefit from your generosity, but I'm telling you it's going to be better for you. Your life will be better when you abandon all of this stuff that you are holding on to. In other words, he's telling them, it'll be worth it. I'm telling you, it'll be worth it. I, I know it sounds crazy right now that, that you would just go and sell all your stuff, but come on, come on, come on, just trust me. I'm telling you, you will never regret this. It'll be worth it. I know that this just sounds crazy right now in your present circumstances, this idea that you would start taking money and dropping it into a bucket, but come on, come on, come on, just trust me. It'll be worth it. I know it sounds ludicrous that you would sacrifice a Saturday. I mean, you're just so, so busy and go and help other people, but come on, come on, come on, come on. It'll be worth it. You're never gonna regret this. I know it sounds crazy that you would adopt, but come on, just trust me on this. It will be worth it. 
It'll be worth it. You're never going to regret this. Uh, on another occasion, Jesus says this, and I, I, I just love um, the imagery that this draws up here. And again, these are Jesus' words, and we're going to end with this. He, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again, and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. I mean, picture this with me. You're walking around in a field, which unless you're a farmer, you probably never do that, so maybe you're walking around in the woods, but you, you, you stumble across something that is more valuable than anything you could possibly ever find, than anything that you could ever work for. It is the single most valuable thing that you could have possibly found in your life. And you look around and see if anybody's noticed, and nobody has. And so you cover it back up, and you immediately go home, and you start unloading all of your stuff. You start selling everything to get enough money to buy that field. And as you do this, people are starting to catch on. Your loved ones and those that are close to you, they're like, what in the heck are you doing? Why are you selling all your stuff? And you tell them, I'm gonna buy that field over there. They go, what? Are you out of your mind? That is a terrible investment. What would you do that for? And you look back and you're like, I don't know. I just, I have a hunch. As your faith grows, you know you know that in the end, you're not really giving away anything at all. Sure, you're abandoning what you currently have, but you're also gaining more than you could have in any other way. You abandon it all because you have found something worth losing everything for. And church, this is Jesus. He is someone worth losing everything for. And, and if we walk away from him like that rich young ruler, we are walking away from eternal riches, from eternal rewards. But when you abandon you and you respond to the radical invitation of Jesus, you discover the infinite reassurance of knowing and experiencing him. The, the fear that, that God, I, I think, really leaned into to uh, kind of get us to do this series is that Grumlaw would just be another church where people hear Jesus' words and they walk away and do nothing, like so many have done before. That we're somehow content to settle for anything less than radical obedience to him. And so throughout the series, we're, we're going to explore what that actually means to live radically for him. For those of you that are new to this whole Christianity thing, I'm confident you'll figure out whether it's worth it or not. We'll talk about the dangers and the joys of following Jesus. But going back to that imagery that we started with, with those kids that are kind of stuck at the top of the lake jump, I don't want that for any of you. I don't want any of you kind of walking back down the stairs and, and wondering what could have been. I want you to all take the leap because at its core, Jesus does not require reflection. Jesus requires a response. Are we willing to be a part of, of a movement that changes course? Are, are, are we willing to be a group of people that are not content to just sit here and reflect on Jesus and the message of Jesus, but we respond? That lives actually change. I hope so. I pray so.